The book of Revelation, chapter 22. I'll begin reading in verse 6 and read to verse 10. Revelation, chapter 22, verses 6 through 10. Give attention then to the reading of God's holy word. Then he said to me, this is the angel from the previous five verses, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, as we come to you this morning, our desire is that we might hold fast to and worship the one whose words are faithful and true. That we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of it, that we would take it in and believe it and live according to it. For all that you have said is profitable for instruction, correction, reproof, and all of these things in the course and for the promotion of righteousness in us. And so by your spirit, work faith in our hearts that bears fruit. We pray these things then in your name. Amen. As we continue with the epilogue, the final chapter of the book of Revelation, John writes of things related to one another, building upon what he has already written, of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that city that comes from heaven to earth, the glory of it, those who live in it, what it looks like, and why it is so glorious and how it grows. I have made, or I have taken, I wouldn't say great pains, but I have endeavored to be quite clear and explicit that the new heavens and the new earth are a reality that is now but not yet fully come. And so we are living in the new heavens, in the new earth, in light of their inauguration, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out on flesh and continues to be poured out on all flesh, such that through the Spirit, by the preaching of the Word, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented around the throne. And already in the book of Revelation, that reality is sealed. It will come to pass because God has decreed it. And so even now we read of those who are new creations. You and I in Christ Jesus are new creations. And as new creations, we are part of this and citizens of this new kingdom. This is one of many glorious new covenant blessings such that we can say no longer are we strangers and exiles of this land. 
Whereas in the old covenant, with the people of God who wandered in the wilderness, it is not so with us. You and I, in Christ Jesus, are being established on this earth, and it is our inheritance. And so we ought to say two things. Number one, this world does not belong to the devil, as so many dispensationalists might say. And not only that, but we await the day of Christ's final judgment when the lost will be removed from this land. And we will stand in the righteousness of Christ, and we, along with Christ, will rule and reign here on earth for all eternity. And the way in which the Spirit, even now, builds this kingdom is as a river. And the river is ever rising. And the effects of the ministry of word and spirit are ever expanding such that of the kingdom of Christ we read, one day the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water covers the sea. And so last week my application to you was the mission and work of the church is to get the world wet. And there is one primary way, one ordinary way by which that happens through the preaching of the word of God through the communication and the teaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and this call, keep covenant in the Son. Seek salvation in no other name than the name Jesus Christ. That is how the river will rise. That is how the tide will change. And that we are to judge what we see on earth, not merely by human sense, for we all have these blinders on, right? We are, we are limited creatures who live within the sort of fog of war, and it seems now even today that the tide is turning against the church. But imagine the early church in the time of Nero when this book was written. How can it be that Christ and the glory of his resurrection is going to have effect if my buddies are being kidnapped by the, the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. They're being dipped in hot oil and then lit on fire for his garden parties for his fellow pagan hedonistic friends. How can it be? And so John writes to the early church, the churches in Asia Minor, and to the churches in Europe, and he says... Christ is on the throne. And every morning it is easy for us to wake up and think, well, it's Monday, May 15th, 2023, and there are all of these enemies that seem to be assaulting the church, the truth of Christ's glorious reign. It, how can it be? How can the promises of Christ be true? And so all of which John writes were not only necessary for the church then, they are necessary for us today. The fact that evil makes progress in a wicked world does not contend with the truth that Christ is on the throne. What God has done in his glorious and bright, although at times seemingly, well, expressly obscure designs, is to allow evil to flourish so that the righteousness of God is revealed against ungodliness. 
for his purposes. But there is a promise in the midst of all of this. And what removes the blinders from our eyes is not a thriving democracy or republic. An expressly Christian West, it is what? The word of God that is trustworthy and true. That is the standard by which we judge all things. Not by what we can see, but by what we can read in the word of God. And so revelation is its life. And what is revealed here in the book of Revelation should be the thing you remember every day you get up, every night you go to bed, your head should hit that pillow and come up off the pillow with these promises that you have girded your loins with, that you wear them as a breastplate, that you use them as a shield. Because there is no more corrupting lie than this that Satan will tell. You're losing. That is a lie straight from the pit in which Satan, who is the loser, now dwells. He wants us to think of ourselves as possessing a vain and loser mission. So I guess the whole theme should be, don't think like a loser. (laughs) Now let's look at these two points as we look at our text this morning. True and faithful words. And then secondly, hope and the kingdom come. Hope and the kingdom come. Let's look at the first point True and faithful words. Now, parents, you know this. We all know this. Even you children know this. There is a rationale for repetition. And that rationale is what? In order to embed something into your mind and into your heart. To get you to hold fast to it. And so whenever we find repetition in Scripture, God is shining a light on the very things. All of it is obviously God-breathed. It's important. It's profitable. But there are certain things here, even in the book of Revelation, that are repeated over and over again. And there's really two clauses or two phrases that are repeated. One is, these are true sayings, or these words are faithful and true, and I'm coming again quickly. And the rationale, as far as God is concerned with people like us, is that we are, well, prone to forget. Or, even if we have not forgotten the language, the grammar, the sentence, the words themselves, we do not grasp their full significance. Right? One of the reasons we often say as husbands and wives, I love you is for the sake of reminding in present trying circumstances, my love for you does not change. It doesn't shift. It doesn't waver. It's constant. And so what do we say? Well, on a regular basis, not like the guy who says, right, I said I love you on our wedding day once should be enough. I can't think of a less biblical way to express affection. Maybe say it in a different way. And I guess that's what the poets are for, right? My love for you is like a summer's day. All right, that's enough. That's enough. We buy a card. Time and time again, God expresses his covenant faithfulness to us. And he uses metaphors, 
illustrations and direct speech, plain direct speech. And here Christ says through his messenger, these words, verse 6, are faithful and true. You can take them to the bank. Now we see this language here in chapter 22, 6. And in Revelation 19, 9, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings. Now, if an angel is passing on to John a message, and then you have, you say you have the message, and then you have at the end of that, take it to the bank, what you need to see is the very thing that was just said is very, very important. What is being said in Revelation 19.9? You are invited. You have an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you know someone well, and they or a family member are getting married, what do you expect as a sign of your intimate fellowship with them? You get an invitation. And I love wedding invitations. Not only because do I get to go there with my wife, oftentimes without children, but it's this incredible meal that I don't have to pay for. It's like all the trappings of a fancy date on someone else. And I get to see all of our friends. It's just this perfect blend of sweet, intimate fellowship. And it reminds me of my own wedding day. And all of those things are good. And then Revelation 21.5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Again, what has just been communicated to John is he's told, write it down. And write down that it's, again, faithful and true. What is it? I make all things new. When has Christ made all things new? Well, he has, and he is, and he will continue to do so, and he will finish it all one day. Even now, all things are being made new. You and I are new creations in Christ Jesus. That work has already begun. You and I are the testimony, the authenticity of this great faithful and true statement. Why is this important? Because the emperor is killing Christians. Right? Why is it important? Because the church is suffering. And what Jesus is saying is not something like, well, just keep a stiff upper lip. No. What he is saying is, I am in my decrees, along with the Father and the Spirit and the counsel of the persons of the Godhead, we have arranged history in such a way that we will get the final glorious victory. And then in Revelation 22, verse 6, these words are faithful and true. The things that the very prophets spoke, these things that are about to take place. Now, what is about to take place? I've talked about this. At the end of the series or towards the end of the series on Revelation, we're going to do a, a review. A couple of sermons of just going through the book and pulling out some of those primary principles that I hope will be for you helpful when you look back on this series and go, I don't remember anything. At least remember these things. And one of the things is this. Christ says time and again through John to the churches in Asia Minor, all of this that I am telling you or about to tell you will soon take place. 
Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. That is not about the second coming of Christ at the end of the millennium. It is the coming of Christ in judgment against Jerusalem in 70 A.D. What I am saying is John is writing prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says to the church, Jesus is coming soon. And that coming is to bring his judgment against the city and the people to whom Christ came. They did not receive him, but they cried out instead, crucify him. They denied the Messiah. Why does John write this again? Because the emperor is killing Christians. Because the Jews are helping Nero kill Christians. Are there not times in our lives where we see those who would think to be our brothers, the righteous among us, who betray the cause of righteousness? We see those who are traitors in our midst who say, I will fight for life. And yet, what do they do? When the time comes to uphold God's word, they betray those who fight for life. They do what is expedient. They go with the money. They go with ease. They are named not for the one who died upon the cross, but for the beast. This was happening. There were many Jews who were converted, even on the day of Pentecost. Many continued to deny Christ, the glory of his kingdom, and the fellowship of believers. And so they, along with Rome, allied themselves against Christ and his people. And what more glorious words are there than I will come in judgment? Now, what is the beauty, if I can say it this way, what is the glory, what is the confirmation of Christ's judgment of Jerusalem? He keeps his word perfectly. And so in 70 AD, the word of this prophecy was fulfilled. And so when the church saw the destruction of Jerusalem, their questioning hearts Lord, what are you doing? Why is the emperor killing us? When will you come in glory? It's a taste. It is a preview of what will come at the end of the age of all men. Christ will not be mocked. You cannot deny the Messiah and live. And so in light of this, these words are faithful and true. These things are about to take place, the end of verse 6, and then verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly, and then there is a, an exhortation attached to these three indicatives. These are faithful and true words. All of this is about to take place. I am coming quickly, and so in light of that, blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy and of this book. Well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? I think it means this. When Hannah had to give up her son Samuel, she knew that God blessed her with a son. 
But prior to that, she spoke with the high priest, Eli. And when he heard her praying in the temple, she was mumbling, praying. Have you ever done that? You're praying with such fervor. You begin to speak out loud, but it's not real clear, and he thinks that she's drunk. And so he rebukes her, and she says, no, I'm praying with fervor that God would bless me with a son. And before she leaves the temple, he says, God will bless you with a son. And the Bible says she did what? She stored that up in her heart. What does that mean? She remembered the words of the high priest as the very words of God that he would bless Hannah with a child, she who was barren. What does it mean to store those words up when you cannot have a child? It means that against all odds, you will take God at his word and your hope is not grounded upon what you can see, what is current, what is present, but what is promised. And what does God do? He blesses her with a son. And what could she have done? I'm going to keep that boy. This boy, my, this first son, I'm going to keep him for myself. But instead, what does she do? Because God gave to her a son after he had weaned. He, she took him to the temple to be raised by Eli. And he became a great judge of Israel leading up to the time of the kings. That is what it means to keep the words here. That what God has said is of greater value, worth, and meaning than what we see in the world and what the world says to us. When Christ is being tempted in the wilderness, how does Satan tempt Christ? He promises to Jesus the very things that the Father had promised to Jesus if he was obedient and suffered and died. But Satan promises those very things, right? He promises ultimately that you will rule as king of the world. Here is the problem, though. It wasn't Satan's to give. In the same way, when the world comes to you and promises you pleasure, wealth, and power, guess what the world can actually not give you? Those very things. It's a lie, Solomon says in the Proverbs. Lady Folly wants you to go with her, and she will hold your hand all the way into the open chasm that is death and chaos. And so when Jesus, through his angel, says to John these three things, he says, put them here. The whole church is to store the words of God right here. Don't listen to the words of men. Listen to the words of Christ. Now this is not a corrective here. There will be a corrective in just a moment. But these things that are now unsealed as we look at all of history, the way the Christian is to look at it is from this perspective. It's not CNN, it's not whatever it's called, Fox News and all the others, right? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. No, 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 that's actually not what's happening. Christ is establishing his kingdom over all the earth. And you can be assured of this. 
that even in the midst of great tragedy and suffering, Christ is faithful by his spirit to bring the river higher and higher, further out and further out into the world. And Christ's words are trustworthy and true. They're trustworthy and true. We need then to get the words of Christ right. This is why when you misinterpret the book of Revelation, you can destroy the very heart and the strength of a church. This is why eschatological pessimism is of great danger. That means pessimism as it relates to where we're going to end up. I've heard pastors, I've read the quotes. Even if we're not successful, at the very least, Christ is coming again. And I'm going, why did he give us the Great Commission? Why would Christ give us marching orders if we're going to march right into a brick wall that is satanic power? What has Christ done? He's only given us the Great Commission. He has torn down everything that can stand in our way unto the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I want you to change the way you think if you've been negative and pessimistic. I've been, up until this point, somewhat undecided. And now I am all in the optimism camp. Whatever you want to call that eschatological position, Christ wins. And he will do so through his church. Now, second point, hope and the kingdom come. Now, it may not seem that I'm super hopeful and excited because I know when I preach, sometimes I can get a little excited and maybe that comes across as being um, haranguing. But part of that is because there's just so much turmoil in my soul and stuff that's going on in here and I can't help but it show. So under this heading, hope and the, the kingdom come, we see John in response to the three indicatives and the exhortation, keep the words. And then this is what John, we read next, John, I, John, saw and heard these things and when I heard it, I worshiped. Now from what part of John is this worship coming? Or what is it coming in response to, rather? John is worshiping because of the three promises and the application. Now, this is how our worship should work. In light of the promises of God, our lives are moved to do what is commanded in light of those promises. But this is not how our worship is to be directed to the one who is the messenger. I, saints, am not the reason, the fount from which the promises of God issue forth. I stand between God and you, and I am just saying, trying to, say what God's word says. I need to have something to say, I need to know how to say it. But I am of zero value other than I speak on behalf of Christ. In fact, time and again in the scriptures, ministers are warned not to shepherd themselves over the sheep, to interfere with what Christ has to say to the church. And so one of the ways in which pastors do this is they do a little too much translation work. 
For instance, when a pastor gets up and says from Romans chapter 1, Paul isn't actually warning us against practices of homosexuality. And he does this, well, it appears to be sophisticated, but unholy exegesis. But what is actually happening? He's taking his moral position and he is shoving it into Scripture to cause the Scriptures to say what he wants them to say. And you see this all the time. It's called asegesis. This is one of the ways in which ministers interfere with the message of grace and judgment that the Scriptures clearly bring forth through the writers. John's worshiping reflects his glorying in the promises of God. The problem is the wrong object. He directs his worship to the angel. And it's no wonder the angel is glorious. He, the angel is fear-inducing. This happens a lot in the scriptures. And wherever an angel does not correct him, we can see that as to be the son of God, Jesus. But whenever it is just an angel, a created being who has measures like men of what you read in Revelation 29, right? We are but created beings, same with the angels. They say, no, 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 I'm just a messenger. Maybe you've heard someone say, don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) That this message is not to be distilled through a man in a way that would confuse the original meaning and sense of it. And here is a problem with a lot of the preaching from Revelation. There's a lot of man in the interpretation of it. Not only is there a lot of bad theology, chief among which is dispensationalism, which teaches the church not to hope in the coming of Christ, but to just wait until he's done evacuating us from this world, this world that belongs to the devil. None of that is true. And there are others as well. The guys that get book contracts and so what they do in order to write another book that makes no sense is they go through the book of Revelation and say, you know what, I think this means this. And so instead of being the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's the next series on the end cap at Lifeway. You understand what I'm saying? And it's not just the book of Revelation. An entire category of biblical scholarship is given over to The next big idea. Now, I was told years ago that ultimately people choose churches based upon who's doing the preaching. And I mourned that idea. I think it's almost inescapable. And the reason why it is inescapable is because we are a people like John who walk by faith or walk by sight and not by faith. In fact, entire ministries are built upon this great hope. And this is why you have, for instance, today, multi-site churches. You know what those are? It would be as though we get this building full. Let's say this room holds 140 people, which, frankly, if you're a multi-site church with 140 people in one room, you're a little big for your britches. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But instead of going and planning a church, let's say, out west, where we have a lot of families coming from, we say, you know what they really need out in Gaffney? They need more Joby. 
And so they get a camera in the back of one of the rooms and they put it on me because what they really need isn't just the clear preaching of the word of God. They need this guy there. This is where we live. Because it is easy for us as a church to place our hope and our ground not again upon what we are told by Christ, but what we see with our eyes. And the angel is told to do what when John worships the angel? First of all, get up. Don't do this. Don't bow down. Instead, do what? See, verse 9, he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and your brother, and of the brethren, your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. And then what does he say? The second principal exhortation. Worship God. Keep the words. Don't worship false gods, even though they speak true words, but instead worship God. John is reminded upon whom he is to keep his sight. And as confirmation of the worthiness of the worship of Christ, we then find, he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. This message now is to be unsealed. Where in Daniel, in Isaiah, chapter 12 of the book of Daniel, chapter 8 of the book of Isaiah, the prophets are told to seal up the testimony because it's a few hundred years before the coming of Christ. And now that John is writing, Jesus says, unseal it. That means it's time to go public. It's time to publish it. It's time to write it and disseminate it throughout the churches. Why? Because it's about to happen. Christ is about to come in judgment. And what does that mean? Out with the old Jerusalem, in with the new. The age of the new covenant church, the coming of the city of God, the bride of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, all of that is now coming. And it has been coming for 2,000 years. And it will continue to come until the city of God is filled with those who are named and sealed by the blood of Christ. The question for us then, at the end of all of this, is how do we live in the age between Christ's first and second coming? How do we live between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and Christ's coming to consummate? That means bring in full the new heavens and the new earth. Well, Titus has something to say of that. In Titus chapter 2, this is what he writes to the New Testament church. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own people, zealous for good works. Saints, we are to fulfill the Great Commission with this hope that as we go forth and teach to observe all things, those who are in every tribe, tongue, and nation, Christ will be with us and our mission will have success. Because the emperor may be killing Christians. And there have been many emperors who've killed many Christians. 
but you cannot stop the church. For even in the defeat, even in the blood of the martyrs, what do we say? There is the seed of the church. Satan cannot win. Satan is bound. The church will have victory. And so, saints, in closing, let us then look to Christ. Let us trust him. Let us believe upon him. Wait for his appearing with hope and joy, not with impatience. I get it. That's hard. It is very difficult, especially when you are young, to be patient. Not with impatience, but hope and expectation. For while we wait, he is, through us, building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us pray. Lord, even now.